Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. And as we learned last week, Mark in his gospel does not spend any time at all um, talking about the birth of Jesus or about his presentation in the temple on the eighth day as a baby. Mark doesn't tell us a thing about 12-year-old Jesus getting separated from his parents and, and being found in the, in the temple speaking to the scribes and Pharisees there, questioning and teaching. And of course, they're all standing around in awe. There are many significant events covered in detail between Matthew and Luke's Gospels about Jesus before his birth up to his teenage years, but Mark begins with his focus on the forerunner, John the Baptist, proclaiming the long-awaited coming king, and then he shifts his focus to Jesus. And this section of Mark's gospel uh, concerning the forerunner is indispensable because for one thing, it tells us all about fulfilled prophecy. Now this week, I'm going to do a little review from last week because some of you were not able to be here, and I'm not certain that you got to listen to it or watch it online. So I'm going to review a little bit to, to lay the groundwork of prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy is the ironclad evidence that the Bible is, in fact, the inspired word of the living God. It also sets God's word and Christianity apart from every other religion. God has told us things that would happen long before they happen. So that when they come to pass, we know that it's true, that it was God speaking, and God is God. And Jesus himself kind of echoes this in John 13, 19. John 13, 19, he says, I am telling you before it occurs, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. We need to understand that one-third of the Bible is prophetic in nature, specifically fulfilled prophecy is unique only to these 66 books, Genesis through Revelation. And remember, God's litmus test for a prophet in the Old Testament and the New was that they had to be 100% accurate 100% of the time. Otherwise, they were moved from that category of prophet over into the category of false prophet. God doesn't make mistakes, and God doesn't miss the mark, okay? And nor does his prophets. He's powerful enough to keep his prophets in line. And when God has told us of a historical event 700 years before it actually takes place, that is powerful proof for the heart of the believer. It's undeniable that the God who exists outside of time and space in, and matter is indeed sovereignly guiding the affairs of men, that he's in control. And it's undeniable. In our passage last week, we considered how Mark used these geographical locations of the significant events in Jesus' life. And he was using this to prove prophecy was true. We considered his birthplace, Bethlehem, where the Messiah was prophesied to be born. In Micah 5.2, it says, One will come forward from Bethlehem to rule Israel. His goings forth are from everlasting 
from the ancient of days. We know that's talking about Jesus. And again, prophesied 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And then because of the threat of King Herod, we know that they fled to Egypt to escape the threat of that king. And they waited until after Herod died and the angel told them to go back to their homeland. And Matthew records their return to Israel as a fulfillment of prophecy from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 where it says, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And when they returned to Israel, Joseph and Mary settled down in this town called Nazareth in the Galilee, and we have prophecy regarding this as well. Pay attention to the specific names mentioned here in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, um, speaking of the tribes of Israel and where they settled after the conquest. In Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, it says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine on them. And again, Nazareth equates to the land of Zebulun, his childhood home. Capernaum is uh, the land of Naphtali, which was his adult home and where he based most of his ministry out of. Again, the River Jordan, where he found his cousin John the Baptist, and the Galilee is that whole area that was insignificant in the eyes of all the people who lived in that land at that time. But we know it to be the place that because of its insignificance, God chose that place, not Jerusalem, which was the central hub of all religious life. He chose this insignificant place out in the sticks to send his son to be raised. The River Jordan, the Galilee, and look how specific the prophecies have been concerning where the ministry of Jesus would be located. And again, 95% of Christ's ministry took place right there in that area around the Sea of Galilee. Look at again at verse 9 in chapter 1. Now it happened in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Mark specifically connects the beginning of Jesus' ministry to these prophesied geographical locations. And you see how powerful prophecy is can be. You see how it distinguishes God's word from any other uh, religious document. And so we will not be deceived. We know because of prophecy, it distinguishes God from all other idols, all other forms of religion, all false gods that people may worship and have worshiped in the past. Okay. I love Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 10. Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 10. Because God himself, and I've, I've quoted this so many times, but it's so powerful. He's explaining the purpose of prophecy in Scripture. Here's what he says. Remember this and be assured. Cause it to return to your heart, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. That's prophecy. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not yet been done, saying, My counsel will be established, and I will accomplish all my 
good pleasure. It's all about him. It's all about his eternal plan. It's all about what he will bring to pass and he will accomplish. So prophecy is history that hasn't happened yet from God's eternal perspective. I want to say that one more time. Prophecy is history that hasn't happened yet from God's eternal perspective. And when God tells us what will happen before it happens, then when we actually see it happen, we remember what he said, and it assures us that eternal, omniscient, almighty God is in control. Amen? He will do all that he intends to do. Nothing and no one can stop him from accomplishing his righteous, perfect, and just will. So in the case of the prophecy concerning Jesus, God was so specific and accurate that the odds of it happening are mathematically impossible. In fact, last week I told you of a gentleman who wrote a book, uh, Peter Stoner. It's, the book is called Science Speaks, and he applies the modern science of probability. Like, what were the odds? And the odds of Jesus fulfilling only eight prophecies in his lifetime is one in 10 to the 17th power. And folks, that is a one in 100 quadrillion chance that Jesus would fulfill only eight prophecies that were prophesied about him in his lifetime. Now, just now we've looked at only five of those very specific prophecies in relation just to those geographical locations where he would be born, he would flee to Egypt, he would come back and all those things. Uh, and the odds of even those five are roughly one in 50 quadrillion. So you see that it is mathematically impossible for, it have, for Jesus to have self-fulfilled prophecy and just tried to you know, figure out the Old Testament prophecy. And he had no idea his parents were going to flee to Egypt. He was a baby, right? So all of these things were done by God. He is who he says he is. He did what he said he would do, and he will do what he says he will do. And we must look only to the Jesus revealed in God's word, only through his completed work, his perfect life that he lived, his death and his resurrection, can you and I be made righteous and can we be reconciled to the Father? Only through Jesus can we have hope in this life in the midst of the trials and the tribulation and the temptations that we will often face. And only in him can we live forever in his holy presence, only in Christ. And salvation in the name of Jesus is not a mystical thing. I want to be clear about this because these days we've made it almost equivalent to abracadabra. If you say in the name of Jesus, then it's got some magical power or something. That, folks, that's not the way the name of Jesus works. That's not how the power of the resurrection works in the life of the believer. His name is not a magic word. And additionally, just claiming that you know Jesus and any old Jesus will simply not do Paul warns in 2 Corinthians 11.4, 2 Corinthians 11.4, he says we can be corrupted by, quote, one who comes and preaches another Jesus whom they did not preach, a different spirit which they did not receive, or a different gospel which they did not accept in the beginning. So he's speaking of uh, these, even as Jesus talked of these false uh, teachers that would come in among the flock, these uh, these wolves in sheep's clothing who would come in not sparing the flock. And then we see in Galatians 1, Paul warns again the church at Galatia. He says, quote, that some will distort the gospel of Christ. He says, even if we or an angel from heaven 
should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. And that means cast out from fellowship. In other words, the true gospel was what they believed in the beginning. And we must make certain that we are holding to the true gospel, uh, that we are worshiping the God of the Bible, led by the Holy Spirit, that we test all things. There's only one true spirit. All other spirits out there are false spirits trying to lead us astray and deceive us. So we must know the voice, truly know the Holy Spirit as revealed in God's word from the time of Christ and then the apostles. That's, that's what he's saying. He's saying if it's something uh, beyond what we have given you in the beginning, you need to be wary of it. And the name that we openly confess as our Lord must be connected to this one person revealed in this Bible, God's one and only Son, Jesus, the prophesied, long-awaited Messiah, God in man's flesh, proclaimed to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this is why Mark in his gospel is affirming in that very first verse there, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And there's no mistaking it. He comes right out and says it. Then he goes on to speak of the forerunner who's preparing the way of the Lord, making his paths straight as that forerunner going ahead before the king, removing removing any obstacles all right from the coming king for the coming king he cites the location specific to the ancient prophecies about the one and only Christ the one and only Jesus and John the Baptist was also the subject of prophecy as we see there Mark states from the book of Isaiah but it's also derived from the book of Malachi and Exodus he was the forerunner fulfilling prophecy including his Nazarite lifestyle his preaching, his popularity, and his water baptism, okay? His baptism ceremonially represented the removal of sin, but there was nothing about being dunked in H2O that actually removed their sin. It was about the condition of their hearts. They were prepared if, in fact, they repented of their sin and believed in the word of God, if they believed in the coming king that God's word had prophesied would be coming. And Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest man to ever be born of a woman, and he baptized with water, but now Jesus had come, and John says Jesus will baptize with the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit. And as I said before, John's baptism was at best ceremonial, all right? It reflected the intent of their repentance, the intent of their heart. But the Christ, the Messiah, had come to baptize with the Spirit of God. And we talked last week about what that means. It, his baptism, his spirit baptism was not ceremonial. It was an all-encompassing, regenerating, transforming, saving, and sealing until the end sort of baptism, a spirit baptism. So in this account of Christ's water baptism, we have the prophesied coming and coronation of the King of Kings who had come to receive all authority. And we transition from what was foretold about Christ's first coming to what is being fulfilled in his first coming. What was foretold to what is being fulfilled. And more importantly, we are transitioning from what before was ceremonial to now what is eternal. The king's reign is about to commence. Amen? But before Jesus can begin his ministry, before he can, he can rightfully reign, he must take the steps, walk in those steps that were foreordained by his heavenly Father. 
the first of which was to be tempted in the wilderness by the God of this world, Satan. In verse 12, if you'll look there with me in verse 12, and immediately the Spirit drove him to go out into the wilderness. Now, folks, the enemies that we all face are these, okay? These are the enemies we face. The desires of this world, our flesh, and the schemes of the devil. This is the unholy trinity of temptation in the life of believers and the life in the lives of humankind. And as a backdrop regarding temptation and its appeal to man's fallen nature throughout history, all the way back to the beginning, I'd like you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Here's what it says, again, as a backdrop. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. You see there, you see how it's listed, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And make no mistake, the temptation of Jesus during this time in the wilderness was cranked all the way up to 11. And as I said, administered by Satan himself. Satan is not omnipresent, folks, so he's only one place at one time. Okay? So it's very likely you and I have never come into contact with Satan himself. Uh, but certainly there are plenty of his... Uh, principalities and powers that go out in his authority and, and do uh, the same thing that he seeks to do. But at his baptism, Jesus had just been coronated king in this Trinitarian moment because we saw the Father and the Spirit, and of course, we're witnessing the baptism of the Son himself. And Jesus had also been fasting for 40 days. And yes, he literally was fasting for 40 days, and then he, along comes the devil to tempt him. And look at verse 13 there, verse 13. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. This was something, again, we need to recognize the Spirit of God drove him to do. He wasn't tricked into going out there. He didn't say, not today, Satan, right? It wasn't something that the devil had orchestrated to get him. This was something that God led through the Spirit of God, led Christ out into the wilderness to, to walk through and to fulfill. His testing was all part of God's plan and process. It was necessary. And yes, Satan was the one doing the tempting, the testing, and the scheming, but Jesus walked through this with purpose. And also, you'll notice, he walked through it in the power of the Word of God. He quoted Scripture. With only a quick survey of his temptation, we see that the enemy Satan sought to derail Jesus in the same manner that you and I are often tempted. So Jesus, he's, he's thinking, he, he knew Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. Oh, you're hungry? Well, if, if you say that you are who you say you are, then turn these stones into bread and eat, all right? So he's tempting him in that way uh, to gratify his flesh, as well as imagine that you're God in the flesh, and here this puny devil is trying to, mock you 
and 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 mocking you, trying to to get you to prove who you really are. That's what Jesus was facing in this moment to engage in boastful pride, that same root of sin. Uh, so Satan might say, you know, oh Jesus, you. You were called the Son of God by the Father just now in the baptism. He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, then if you're really His Son, jump from the pinnacle of the temple, and surely the angels are going to catch you, and you won't dash your foot against a stone. You see how He's, he's tempting him to, to go against God's Word. He's tempting him to put his Father to the test, and in so doing, prove that he is indeed God's son, but that appeals to pride, that appeals to arrogance. He was trying to get him to fail. And also, oh, he sees Jesus was just coronated king. He was just baptized, anointed with the Holy Spirit, and, and, and you're, you're supposed to rule, you're supposed to reign. Well, Jesus, I can give you the world right now. He showed him all the world and said, all you have to do is bow down to me and you can have it all now. Now, folks, Jesus was being tempted with worldly power without the weak of the passion. He was being offered a crown without the burden of the cross. And it's interesting how the temptation of Jesus echoes in a reversed sort of manner that of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Because, you know, the devil's schemes are not new. He uses the same schemes on all of us, and we see that uh, in the Garden of Eden. They had the world in their hands. They had been given authority by God to be fruitful and multiply. They had peace and all the food they could ever need. They just couldn't eat of that one tree, right? There were no wild, ferocious beasts in Eden. There were no tornadoes or hurricanes or tsunamis, none of that stuff. So they lived in peace, and there was no pain or suffering, no sorrow, no death. Adam was God's man placed here in this world with authority and given purpose by God, and we know that he failed in that. Eve was deceived, and Adam straight up rebelled against God, just disobeyed. And they were tempted in much the same way that Jesus was. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, Genesis 3, 6, look at what it says here. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food. There's the lust of the flesh. And that it was a delight to the eyes. There's the lust of the eyes. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. There's the boastful pride of life. It was right there in the beginning. So she took from its fruit and ate. And Adam then, we know, took and ate. And in so doing, Adam willingly just tossed aside God's divine purpose for his own self-gratification. That's exactly what Satan was trying to get Jesus to do in the wilderness. Toss aside God's divine purpose, Jesus, and you can have it all now. Self-gratification. Rarely does self-gratification have anything to do with God's purpose for us in our lives. I don't know if you recall or not, we covered the cost of true discipleship. Self-abasement. We saw it acted out from Jesus himself, who being God in man's flesh, became a servant. He humbled himself taking on the form of man and became obedient even unto death on the cross. That was our example. He washed the disciples' feet. But he very plainly in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, he states what it means to be a true disciple. And here's what it is. This goes for you and I. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The cross 
is not a burden that we get to lay aside if we would like to be a true disciple of Christ. Our test and our temptation comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil as well. And Jesus was focused on nothing else but doing the will of his Father. And that should be the focus of our life as well, to do the will of the Father. When we face temptation or a test, how many times do we just pray and beg God to just deliver us from the temptation or deliver us from the test? Instead of walking through this test, dealing with it and praying to God, relying on God and saying, Lord, what do you want me to learn through this trial? What do you want me to learn through this test? And it's hard, I know, but we have to walk by faith. And in the power of his word, that's our calling. No matter how bad this life can get, no matter what circumstances we may face, we have to fulfill his purpose for us, for his purposes, until we get to go be with him. The true eternal reward lies ahead for each and every one of his faithful followers. And we should never seek to circumvent the fellowship of his suffering. He told us flat out, that's, we're going to take part in that. And I know we've lived in a, in a pretty prosperi- uh, pros- prosperous time in the United States of America over many years. A time of peace where there's been very little persecution. And uh, we don't face the kind of persecution and treatment that other believers face around the world. Um, but I wouldn't get too comfortable because we don't know how long that's going to last, right? However... I will say this, we need to be aware of the more subtle and dangerous temptations to gratify our flesh. We live in a world, a shiny, sparkly world full of millions of distractions that the enemy seeks to get you off track and to lay aside God's purpose. And it's subtle, it's dangerous, you want to get comfortable, eventually before you know it, you've fallen into the trap of loving the things of this world. And you don't have to be blatantly sinful to miss the mark. We can easily be lulled into a life of spiritual mediocrity, of just kind of going through the motions. And we waste our life. We can squander our time away, this precious time that the Lord has given you on this earth. He purchased this time for you to do His will. And you and I have to be careful not to spend it on frivolous things worthless things be engaged in the mission pursue Jesus with all that you are in everything you do in everything you say seek to reflect his nature as Paul said press on toward the mark of the high calling because being Christ-like is the whole purpose of the journey as we walk with him we grow in our love for Him and in the knowledge of the Word of God, our mind is renewed. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we become more like Christ. And that's the goal of this life. And then Paul says, keep your eye on the prize because your reward is life with Christ in eternity. You get to spend eternity with your God and your King, the one who paid for your sin, the one who laid his life down for you. And it's erroneous, folks, and flat-out irresponsible to teach that life is all peaches and cream, that by the world's standards we should live the high life, that we should be prosperous in everything we do. That's the will of God for some people, but not all people. 
We should expect to carry the cross of true discipleship. We should expect to face the fallenness of this world the same way Jesus did. That is our calling. And look what Mark mentions here in the second half of verse 13 about Jesus. He was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. This is what he faced, but it should also remind us that we are to take part in the fellowship of his suffering and that we too may face these types of trials and tribulations. And I want you just for a moment in your mind's eye to imagine yourself back in that first century when these folks were huddled together to worship by candlelight in the catacombs, crawling into the tombs where, where the dead people were laid. And by candlelight, they're worshiping the Lord because they too were being attacked. They too were being hunted. They too were being followed. And they knew that if they were caught, they were thrown into a, an arena with lions. They faced the wild beasts in front of everyone. And so many of them gave their lives for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They died a martyr's death. And how comfort it, comforting it must have felt that in this passage here, as they're in the catacombs by candlelight, they're hearing this gospel of Mark read aloud to them. And they are assured that Christ himself was with the wild beasts in the wilderness. How comforting that must have been. But they endured to do the will of their Lord, just like Paul endured, just like Peter endured, and so many of these other disciples endured. Obedient unto death. And now for us, just as they endured in faith and have laid hold of their eternal reward, that's the promise for true believers today. One day we too will be ministered to by angels. The Bible says, do you not know? Paul says, do you not know that one day we will judge angels? That we will have authority over them? One day we are going to uh, be in the presence of God's holy angels and be in the presence of our king. Now, uh, if you look at verse 14 through 15 now, we see in a very quick fashion, Mark tells us that after the temptation for Jesus and after the decreasing of John the Baptist, a transfer takes place, a transfer from the forerunner to the coming king and his kingdom. So let's look at verse 14 and 15 there. Now, after John had been delivered up into custody, so here Mark's saying that John had decreased. Remember what John the Baptist said? I must decrease so that he may increase. That's that transfer of authority and power. That's the transfer of the, of the ministry and the calling of God there. So John was delivered up into custody, and we know, of course, that uh, not long after he was, he was murdered as well. It says, Jesus came into Galilee, again, making the point he fulfilled that prophecy that we covered earlier. He was preaching the gospel of God and the gospel of God. It didn't say the gospel of Jesus Christ. It said the gospel of God and the all-encompassing gospel of God is that you can be reconciled to God. There is a way for you to be reconciled with the Father. Verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And that, when it says the time is fulfilled, it's talking about prophecy. That God set forth in his eternal perspective, in his eternal, all-encompassing plan, he set forward this plan. And he had made uh, points along the way, decisions where things would take place and, and how things would unfold. And he's saying right here, the time is fulfilled. The time 
is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And if you were an Israelite living in that day, having brought up to know the scriptures and the prophecies regarding the coming Messiah, having now seen this man who was born in Bethlehem, just as was prophesied, who returned home from Egypt, just as was prophesied, who had settled and conquered in the land of Zebulun, Nazareth, and Naphtali, Capernaum, and ministered in Galilee along the Jordan, all prophesied all fulfilled at God's appointed time, you too would listen to this man who was preaching and you would listen when he said, repent and believe in the gospel. He would get your attention, in other words. He would not be ignored. The only response for them was what Jesus told them to do, repent and believe in the gospel. That was their decision. And you and I, folks, we don't need to see God perform any more mighty miracles. We don't, we don't need to seek that and look for that any longer. All right? We don't need to actually even see him fulfill or make any more prophecies to prove anything to us because we have the scripture. We hold it in our hands. We have the written record of all the promises of God made long before they came to pass. We can read about his mighty deeds. I read about Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea on dry land, and I believe. He doesn't have to repeat that miracle for me. I believe. He's God, and I believe. And in light of this divine revelation, that at the appointed time for our sakes, even in our fallen, sinful, and hopeful state, God became a man, and he lived a perfect, sinless life, one that you and I cannot live. But Christ came and he lived a perfect sinless life. And on the cross, folks, he took your sin and he took my sin. It's penal substitution. He took what you deserved upon himself. And for our sake, he took the wrath of his heavenly father and he paid your ransom so that you could be right with God. And if we repent and believe, the Bible tells us that we can live eternally in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is the gospel that was offered to them so long ago, and it is still the gospel offered to us today. If we believe, then we must repent. We must turn from our deception and realize who Christ is. Turn from your selfishness. Lay down your pride, lay down everything that you think life is about. Take up your cross and follow him. Put your trust in the finished work of the one and only Jesus Christ revealed in Scripture alone. There are no substitutes. There is no other name under heaven whereby we might be saved. It is Jesus Christ, the one and only. The time is fulfilled. The King has come. His kingdom is at hand. Do not wait this morning. If the Lord is working in your mind and your heart and you see the proof of God's word, the evidence set before you that the gospel can be grasped and held, you can put your faith and trust, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome.